The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Just a couple of girl dads well, doing a, doing well, a podcast Welcome here. back to Pod Save the World, indeed. Thank you. Uh, and we are very excited to have another girl dad. I missed you guys very much. Uh, Lizette is a fan, but she did tell me that you know some of our episodes have gone on too long. I was kind of insulted <laughs> by that. Well, well, how long is she sleeping? Because maybe it can put her to sleep. You know, you know <laughs> one of the, the nurses in the, at Cedars was like, you know, it's good. They like music. It helps their brain development. I, I did say to Hannah, I wonder, why not play a podcast for your kid? Because one of the things you want them to do is hear words, right? Helps yeah. With brain yeah, development language. and language. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we could get some Give more downloads yeah, that listen, way. Yeah, get, get, and if she keeps falling asleep, you know, those repeat downloads own, kick in, you know. It's our own little... Just tell her to smash that, that, that five-star rating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honey, come on. Give daddy a good review. Today, by the way, is Chloe Rhodes' sixth birthday. No way. Yes. yes. Happy birthday. Six. So you, before you know it, you two will be celebrating sixth birthday. Man, that feels so far. It's like she's now a month old, basically. She was born on the sixth. It's the third as we record this. And it's very weird because you have a baby, they lose weight, and then they gain weight. Yes, that is a weird thing that happens. Scary. But then, you know, you do wake up, you put them to bed and you wake up the next day and you look at them and you're like, they, they she does look different. She looks they, bigger. They get bigger by like the week <laughs> yeah. in the first year. It's crazy. And like one day, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, she has brown eyes. Okay. Yes, there you go. Now we know that. Yeah. That's very strange. But yeah, it's very exciting stuff. Um, Hannah is, uh, could not be happier. That's awesome. It's such a great, New Year's present, Christmas present, all all wrapped in truly, a, truly the best possible bow. Quite a year, uh, and you just got back from New York. I, I I thought you were addressing the UN. I was sort of no, I was just nerding out and showing my my daughter the UN. What's she <laughs> so, think? What do you guys? Sh- what do you show uh, Turtle Bay? What do you look at up there? Well, you know, because they've got the the office building, but then underneath it, you've got the where the Security Council is. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to explain the Security Council. How'd that go? This is what this is what I, these are the kind of conversations I have with my eight year old daughter. <laughs> well, what does she make of the Security Council? She's very, a big supporter of the concept of the United Nations. Okay, uh, but she's very she 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 knows Russia is bad. She's not, pissed not about the veto. Not for me, by the way. Like they talk about this at school, so she's she's mad about the the permanent seat for Russia. Oh, yeah, okay. She doesn't know why they're there. If they're doing bad things, I have a feeling that uh, she's going to know an awful lot about this stuff <laughs> yeah, at some yeah, point yeah. in her life. She's a very very smart kid. Well, we got a great show today, Ben. Lots of Ukraine news to catch up on. Yes, we have a new Israeli government. Yes, we which do. Is cool. Uh, terrible news about the Taliban's treatment of women. A follow up on our many discussions last year about China's zero COVID policy. North Korea just will not stop firing various things into the air and pissing everybody off. Yep. Uh, and then some some mixed a mixed bag of news out of Brazil. Mostly good. Mostly good. Mostly good. Mostly good. There is a you know one great soccer star who's no longer with us. Yeah, we'll talk a little Pele. I got some some Pele. We talk, did, I imagine. Did you guys watch as much uh, World Cup as we did? Yes, uh, we we got we definitely got very into the World Cup this year, um, and uh, you know. As you knew, once the game started, uh, it's hard to look away, and it definitely delivered. But uh, I, I will say that the there was something so tacky about the the ceremony when there's the emir like draping, you know that that thing on Messi, and there's the FIFA guy like you know not getting out of the the shot. Did you see Salt Bay? Yeah, the Turkish chef <laughs> yeah. trying to get Messi to take a picture. Of him. So what was kind of nice about it is like yeah, FIFA and Qatar got what they wanted, right? Uh, but really, it was about Messi and yeah. Mbappe. So, you know, ultimately, it was pretty clear who the fans were into, and it wasn't the, the head of FIFA. No, you know? it was not Gianni Infantino. <laughs> yeah. um, he is a, a tool. Uh, I was talking to Raj about this. Um, I was impressed and kind of proud of the press corps and the discourse before the tournament and about how much people were talking about Qatar, uh, its human rights record, uh, some of the challenges and corruption within FIFA. I sort of always knew 
that that stuff was going to fall out of the headlines once the soccer started. I did not anticipate it being like one of the best World Cups in the history of the World Cup. And I'm a little bummed out at how omnipresent Mohammed bin Salman was yeah. at these games. Yeah. And he's like, he's hired Messi to be their tourism spokesman for Saudi well, Arabia. Well, and they just gave Ronaldo <laughs> like $215 million for one year yeah. uh, to play in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I think to, to you know, the, the real test, right, will be whether or not they award that that cup to Saudi Arabia. Yes, so they've got the a bid, thing. you know, we've got the next one in North yep. America, but the next one after that, the Saudis have this this bid. And with if, Egypt. If they give it to Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Greece you know, kind of. At least there'll be a world corrupt sequel, but yeah. <laughs> but it would it would be a sign of, you know, that the dollars are ultimately still buying uh what Mohammed bin Salman is looking for, which is reputation laundering. 100%. And, you know, the FIFA says that, you know, uh, human rights um, considerations will go into future hosting competitions. We'll see. And the, and the very weird thing about this is, you know, Messi is a spokesman for uh, the Saudi Tourism Bureau. It's supposed to sort of stop at that. But also Argentina is part of the competing Latin America bid. So he's yeah. kind of in a tough spot here. But I think he's doing okay. Messi's having a good year. Yeah, I... <laughs> That, good, that, good decade, good that, life. That final was the best soccer game I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And that was for all the people who yell at us about talking about sports at the top. At least, at least, it's, at least it's a global sport. Yeah, it wasn't the Jets yeah, and the yeah, Patriots. Yeah, yeah. I am not. I, I didn't actually wear a Patriots sweatshirt. Okay, Ben, Ukraine. Lots of news out of uh, Ukraine to discuss over really the last month. Maybe we just start with the military situation where it's still a horrible, brutal stalemate. Uh, the Russians are targeting energy and, and civilian water infrastructure. They're doing so in a way that I think is accurately defined as terrorism. I mean, you don't need to launch a bunch of missiles on New Year's Eve when people are celebrating, right? Unless you want to send them a message. There's no military purpose, really, other than to terrorize and pulverize and make life miserable for the population. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot of these um, Iranian-made drones getting involved in, in, the, in the bombing campaigns. Ukrainians are fighting back. There was apparently a Ukrainian uh, HIMARS strike. HIMARS are the longer range U.S. artillery that we, the U.S., uh, the Biden administration gave them after, you know, some debate. Uh, this happened on New Year's Day. It reportedly killed between 63 and 400 Russian soldiers in Donetsk. That depends on which side's casualty estimate uh, you believe. But the Russians, I think, put out that 63 Russian soldiers died, which is remarkable. This strike was on a, a, a building housing Russian soldiers. Some pro-Russian bloggers say that the casualty count was so high because the Russian military was storing am ammo at the site as well. Others say it was targeted because there's new recruits in there. They're using their cell phones. That's led to more calls for uh, the criminal prosecution of military leaders in charge in Russia. Interestingly, Ben, like, that's something we've seen a lot of, which is criticism of the generals. The Russian generals yeah. who are carrying out the orders. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, if you look at um, Putin's comments uh, around Christmas and New Year's, you know, um, which are important moments usually in the Russian political calendar, he was preparing people for a long war yeah. in a way that he didn't before. You know, obviously he tried to do this quick, called it a special military operation. Um, but the combination of kind of Putin's grim, um, you know, long view of, of what this war is, and we owe this to our predecessors and our descendants, kind of putting in this huge sweep of history, coupled with the, the real bombardment of Ukrainian civilian targets. And you, you just have the feeling that this is entering a pretty dark phase uh, that's going to be really hard on the Ukrainian people. You yeah. know? And the mobilization that Putin did, while haphazard and leading to a lot of people fleeing Russia, and you know, obviously these troops are not well-trained, it does kind of replenish their, their lines. And so it, it feels like after a, a period of Ukrainian gains, like we're settled back into a stalemate. And then the question is, well, what comes next? And this gets to the assistance question because part of what Ukraine wants, not the only thing, is a lot more of that kind of long-range artillery. And we see with that strike in Donetsk, why? They, they want to be able to target Russian positions as the kind of front line is settled back in. You know, their capacity to, to strike deep into Russian-controlled territory without having to mount, you know, offensives that bring a lot of casualties is clearly what they're looking for. You totally, know? yeah. And, and like, I mean, we talked about this a lot. I mean, there's a question of whether 
you know, the the war would come home, Russian people would get upset when they see the body count going up and up. And I started to realize, like, I was just pretty naive about that because I think about uh, wars that the United States has waged and how slowly the tide of public opinion turned and how strong the forces of nationalism can be. And I'm not trying to compare the Iraq war or compare the Vietnam war one-to-one with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm just saying like, generally speaking, I think there is a rally around the flag effect that I think has been stronger than maybe I expected given, uh, I don't know, we've seen counts of like 100,000 casualties from the Russian side. Yeah, and and when you, you know, you talk, to Russians anecdotally, right? And that's all we really have. Um, you know, th- there there is a vein I- in Russian history of kind of submitting to the state, no matter how bad right. things are, you know. Um, now that can reach a breaking point. Um, and the war in Afghanistan, uh, the Soviet war in Afghanistan uh, did reach something of a breaking point, but only after many years. And And I think, you know, at the beginning of the war, um, you, you know, you kept thinking to yourself, as horrific as it looked, think of a recent war that didn't go on for much, much longer than people expected. So, yes, you know, people I, I saw at year's end, there are a lot of like, how could this end? And here's three ways the war could end or four ways the war could end. We just don't know. Yeah, you I know agree. Putin could die. Putin could be overthrown. The Ukrainians could make some gains or the Russians could wear the Ukrainians down or there could be kind of some version of a frozen conflict. But However, is the case, it looks like we're headed for, you know, a continued long slog. And I thought Zelensky, you know, you could kind of sense in his visit to Washington, which we, we can talk about, yeah. that he he knows that. Yeah. <laughs> he's not really, he, he's trying to give people a mixture of hope and realism, which I think is right. Yeah, know? I think you're right. Too. I mean, you, I've been thinking a lot about those conscripted Russian troops too. I mean, you know, you throw 300,000 guys at the- yeah. At the front, uh, that should have an impact. There's also this debate now about whether the Russians are running low on ammunition and whether they'll have to sort of rein back their their offensives. I don't know. I certainly, I definitely fail to appreciate how important the Russia-Iran relationship was going to be and the impact of these uh, Iranian drones. And I think there's also a sense that like the Iranians are basically providing ongoing uh, guidance and best practices to the Russians about how to evade Western sanctions. And so, you know, the Donetsk fronts is pretty active right now. Luhansk, I think, is a little more of a stalemate in part because like it's muddy and no one can move. Well, and, and the Iranians, you know, part of the issue, and we had this you know, great episode with with the Rezaians. Um, but like as that regime in Iran gets more and more isolated and desperate, their incentive for not just going all in with Russia goes away. Like they've, you know, Russia has very few friends. Like Iran has very few friends. Um, they're they're yeah. kind of, there's this kind of commingling of their own isolation that can lead to, you know, even more Iran saying, well, this is basically one of our only patrons in the international system. Like, what, what, why not just kind of pour these weapons in? So it has made a difference because what the Russians had was this kind of clearly this military that was corrupt and, and um, kind of big and lumbering. The Iranians have this experience of waging these kind of asymmetric conflicts, mm-hmm. right? And using kamikaze drones and, and you know, terrorist attacks and and so that you see this kind of obviously the Iranians and Russians worked together in Syria but um you, you do see this kind of mixture of Iranian tactics and you know the, the Russians wage artillery battles the Iranians have kamikaze drones you know um so it, at the same time the other thing i looked at was the this you know, meeting between Lukashenko the the leader of Belarus yes. uh and Putin very worrisome and this question of whether Belarus resumes its role as this kind of launching pad on Kiev, right? And so, you know, you're right. The the Russians could suffer over time because one thing the sanctions are doing is denying them some resupply of technology and uh, it's going to get harder for them to manufacture uh, weapons. Um, but, you know, the the front may just shift to, to different places as the war drags on. Yeah. You know? so, so you mentioned uh, Zelensky's visit to Washington. 
also around that time, just before Christmas, I think Congress approved another 45 billion in aid to Ukraine, which brings the U.S. total to nearly 100 billion. The really big ticket item that uh, President Biden delivered to Zelensky for his visit to Washington was the Patriot missile system, which is like the top of the line missile defense system that will hopefully help defend Ukraine against these Russian missile and drone attacks. The Biden team still doesn't seem to want to provide Ukraine with longer range missiles or tanks or other sort of like heavier hardware. Ben, I caught Zelensky's speech to Congress in between like bottle feedings and whatnot. <laughs> like, I'm curious what you made. I didn't think it was his most powerful speech just rhetorically, but the Ukrainians understand the kind of like theatrics of these events better than anybody and like bringing the flag and having, you know, Pelosi uh, and the vice president hold it up, I think was a powerful image. Zelensky certainly like looked the part of the wartime president. I think it was smart to really firmly link Russia and Iran together in that speech, which is both true, but, you know, savvy politics, yeah. knowing like the makeup yeah. of the U.S. Congress. Like, What would you make uh, of the speech, though? So first of all, the timing was, said everything, which is I think the Ukrainians really are worried about the Republican takeover of the House, you mm -hmm. know, because, you know, he very deliberately came while Nancy Pelosi was still speaker. Right. So that one, they could get that 45 billion out the door while the Democrats are still in charge and make sure that that gets through with no hiccups. And that worked. Um but also uh, because he probably wanted to get in front of the Republicans, knowing that there are a bunch of hawkish Republicans who are kind of on the Ukrainian side, to kind of fortify their Republican allies um, ag against the Republicans who may want to, you know, start blocking funding. Um, and you could tell that that there was he was kind of speaking to Republicans a lot, and mm -hmm. that's you know the Iranian linkage, and yep. you could sense that he was uh, he knew that. I need to, this 45 billion is going to run out faster than people think, because at the rate that they're using these weapons, they need to replenish. Totally. And at the rate that their government is, you know, needs money and needs financing. Uh, and, and look, he's going to have to be back in a year, you know. But so the first thing was the timing. The second thing is, you're right, it wasn't his best speech by any measure. But part of the reason why I think is he delivered it in English, which mm -hmm. he's not, he's not like, super fluent in English. Right. And 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 so it, it really hit the basics, you know. But the basics were trying to hit all those American touchstones and comparing their war to to the Saratoga, mm -hmm. the battle in our Revolutionary War and FDR and World War II. You know, I I think he just wanted to kind of check in and hey, you American people may not have been paying attention to Ukraine for a few months here. Here we are and we're, you know, we're of a piece with you and we want to remind you that you're the leader of the world and uh, you should feel good about supporting us. So it was really just kind of hitting the wave tops. He didn't go into a lot of detail. But then the last thing I'd say is that you could sense the gap between the enormous amount that the Biden administration is doing, which Zelensky clearly understands. He said, thank you a lot of times. Yeah. Like I noticed a lot. He seemed of, grateful. A lot of gratitude. Yes. Some, sometimes Zelensky turns the dial into like shame. Yep. This was more gratitude. Um, and I bet you that that's a message that he worked out with the Biden team. But he worked in these little, there was a line where he said, tanks and planes, you know, and he almost kind of smiled when he said it because he knows he's not getting it. Yep. But I do think, you know, they got this Patriot battery, but not a lot of Patriots. I think you know? it's just one uh, I think battery, it's like one right? battery yeah. right? So this is not like it's going to eliminate the Russian uh, air threat. Um, and he wants tanks, he wants planes, he wants more long-range artillery systems that he's not getting. And that's not to say that you know, the Biden team is not doing a lot. It just means that you know, there is this, this existing divide, which is kind of irreconcilable in some ways, because the Biden team, it wants to manage the escalation risk. And, and, and so I think there, there's, there, there could be sources of tension as we get further into the year, if the Ukrainians want more of these weapons, they're going to need more money. And frankly, it's going to be harder to get those things. Yeah. And as the, as the war seems like it's going to go longer and longer, some of these questions about, well, can we train them in time? Will it really be useful? I think they sort of fall away. I'm wondering what your view on this sort of question around guardrails uh, when it comes to arming the Ukrainians or, or what is escalatory, whether they've changed. I mean, I've been thinking about this, like, there is a very, I think, legitimate concern about escalation or the Russians responding with some sort of nuclear use, right? It does seem like the most likely scenario where that happens is when Putin feels like he's losing. So then 
Does that argue for like pumping 100 billion worth of U.S. assistance into Ukraine to get to this current stalemate for an unlimited amount of time? Or does it make more sense to say, okay, let's give them more advanced weapons earlier. Let's end the war faster. There's always going to be this risk of nuclear uh, chemical weapons usage. But, you know, as long as there's some guardrails that are like, don't attack Moscow, don't hit civilian targets. Maybe it's a better strategy than this like very bloody, expensive, kind of risky current stalemate strategy. I think that the, that that's going to be the key policy question in the next few months because, uh, first of all, th- there's also a difficulty for the U.S. Like, I-, I heard this when I was working on that Taiwan piece. Our own stocks of certain ammunition and systems are so depleted that yeah. our capacity to deliver arms sales to Taiwan is going down. Right. Really um, good point. And also, by the way, when you give a howitzer to the Ukrainians, that's not the end of it. It's going to break. Yeah. It's going yeah, to exactly. be refurbished. It's going to come yeah. back out, go back in. It's, right. it's like way more complicated than it sounds at first blush. That's right. So if we're pouring small arms and ammunition and howitzers in that need to be replenished, that then aren't being delivered to other you know partners like Taiwan, like, like and, and interestingly, the absence of a war like Iraq and Afghanistan is the only thing that's making this possible. Mm. And by the way, it's probably boondoggle for some oh arms God, manufacturers in the Raytheon U.S. So the question becomes like, are we kind of fueling a stalemate, right, by providing all of these smaller arms and, and this ammunition and these systems that are kind of for this artillery battle in the East? You know, do we go to more advanced weaponry to try to break that stalemate and increase the risk of escalation? I think that that means like there's some systems that are clearly the Biden administration is going to be uncomfortable with like planes, really long range missiles, right? right? The kinds of things that you just use to go into Russia. But like- Like super advanced drones, they seem to be worried about too, because they're worried about the capturing them and the technology transfer. Reverse engineering. Yeah. Now those, I do think the, the some of these long range artillery systems and tanks, for instance, there's going to be more pressure on, well, why not just, you know, like we saw how- the U.S. infusion of those helped with these offensives that we saw in Kharkiv and Kherson, and I think the 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 pressure and maybe the argument on behalf of just saying, well, why not just more advanced long range systems to try to break some of the stalemate along that front line to try to get Ukraine some more territory, you know, so that the stalemate that emerges is at least a little bit more advantageous to Ukraine. I think the scales might tip a bit in that direction. Uh, and then the rationale for air defense systems continues to go up. Now, Patriot batteries sense, are hard yeah. to replace. They're expensive, yeah. you know. Um, now, I will point this out. We have a bunch of Patriots in, like, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> you know. So once again, like, uh, if we can, you know, pour these into right. the Gulf, like, what, what, I, I, I think that the Ukraine has a much better claim on those, right? So I do think there's room to do more uh, while managing the escalation risk and trying to affect the stalemate. Because um, at, at some point, are we just kind of prolonging a conflict that is costing a lot of human life yeah. and not, you know, uh, and not trying to decisively affect where that front line is? Right. And, you know, the, the one thing that's sort of the one lucky break, to the extent that anyone's lucky here, is that it's been unseasonably warm in Europe. So the Putin plan to basically freeze all of Euro- Europe by uh, denying them natural gas has not worked yet. Now, obviously, like the weather can change, but it also I think has made muddy ground, uh, which makes it harder to move these heavy weapons around so the Russians can't you know, launch a defensive necessarily. Yeah. And what we'll have to look at, too, is what is the effect on European politics, right? We've talked a lot about the concern that let's watch how the next several European elections go to see if the Putin plan is working where higher prices are upsetting people? Um, or does your, the European public just kind of adjust um, to the new reality? And I thought I saw the German Chancellor Schultz, like in his year end speech was basically like, hey, we we're adjusting. We have to, you know, he's trying to create some resilience in that society. Um, that will be an interesting test, too, of what uh, of what works. Does does Europe adjust to this new reality um, or does Putin start to see some more Putin friendly leaders get in there? Yeah. And, and do they really uh, do European capitals really start adjusting their defense spending and get it up to that two percent of GDP level that America has always pushed them for? Yeah, because they'll have to replenish their own weapons, too. Right? They're not accustomed to shipping this much stuff out no, the door. No, not at all. Um, anything else on Ukraine? No, I mean, I, you know, it just uh, it, it's hard to overstate. Like, 
I can't imagine just living in darkness. I, I can't mean, either. you know, it, 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 the, it, it's you can forget how um, how difficult this is, and the kind of triumphalism around the conversation about Ukraine sometimes is not an easy time to be in Ukraine. My power went out for two hours in Los Angeles, and Hannah and I were panicking. I can't yeah. imagine like having a kid, having a baby. A kid, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's just it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crooked World. Speaking of nightmares, Ben, uh, our old friend (laughs) Bibi Netanyahu is officially back. He is once again the Prime Minister of Israel for a record sixth term. Mm. Couldn't find anyone better. One of those terms. Uh, He is now leading an ultra right wing, ultra religiously conservative government. Uh, Reminder, by the way, that Bibi is still dealing with multiple criminal trials for bribery, fraud and breach of public trust. But apparently that did not matter. Uh, This new government is comprised of members of Netanyahu's conservative Likud party and then members of other ultra nationalist and ultra orthodox parties. They released a document outlining uh, the new government's priorities, which include legalizing existing settlements. And uh, it says, quote, the government will advance and develop settlements in all parts of Israel, in the Galilee, the Negev, Negev, I don't know how to say it, the desert, the Golan Heights, and in the West Bank. There was also language that seemed to allow for discrimination against LGBT people on religious grounds, uh, special treatment for ultra-Orthodox men who don't want to work or serve in the military. And they will try to push through changes that will allow the Israeli parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority 
vote. Uh, two of BB's incoming ministers have criminal records. One did time for bribery, uh, the other for supporting a terrorist organization. Uh, it is also worth noting that the new Israeli foreign minister seemed to suggest that the new government will further reduce its already pretty tepid support for Ukraine. And uh, right-wing coalition members have called for new rules governing holy sites, which uh, King Abdullah of Jordan reacted to like he was about to go to war. He basically was like, you know, we're ready to battle you over this one. So uh, thoughts on this new government, Ben? <laughs> and, uh, do you see any signs or hope or indications that the U.S. approach towards Netanyahu's government will change from what it's always been? I mean, first of all, I just have to say, um, not to... I've, I've ranted in a while, trying to curb please, it a little bit. Please, but I mean, no. you know, if, if a decade ago you said that Bibi Netanyahu had absolutely no interest in peace, was racist or at least racist adjacent, his basic political project was to try to claim all of greater Israel, you know, you were seen as, uh, how can you say that? You know, mm-hmm. he, he said... He said in a speech once that he supports the Palestinian state, that they, they call for talks with the Palestinians. That was all bullshit. And it was so obviously bullshit at the time. Yep. But people wanted to hide behind this convenient talking point that, no, Bibi Netanyahu is committed to two states. There's a peace process. It's the Palestinians' fault. The Palestinians never miss an opportunity, miss an opportunity. But you're forgetting warriors are the ones who can uh, who can sue for peace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bibi yeah. Bibi's going to be Nixon going to China. Like, this is who he always, always was. Always has been. This is who he was. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. Now he has the government he wants, which is a bunch of lunatics. <laughs> like, this is as if Donald Trump got reelected. Paul Gosar was in charge of, like, the United States yeah. military. Marjorie Taylor Greene was in charge of the Department of Homeland Security. Yep. And Lauren Boebert was the fucking attorney general. That's <laughs> who's the government, right? And the Supreme Court uh, no longer has jurisdiction, maybe, in no, the future. <laughs> this is what they've... What they, what, I, I can't even begin to, to describe what they've already done. I mean, they basically announced, like, on Twitter... That their policy is annexation of the West Bank. Uh, like, there's BB. Like, oh yeah, overtly. Where are all the people that defended BB as a man of peace? Well, what do they have to say about that? Where are you right now? Right? You, you've got Ben Gavir, the, the the supremacist. You know, first literal act going, terrorist sympathizer going to the Temple Mount to yeah. try to stir the most you know delicate pot in the world. Right? Uh, I mean, so that's the first point. Is like the extremism is a, such a rebuke to to the apologist for BB Netanyahu of the last decade. Got that out of my system. I okay? like it. Now, then, this is a huge like test of the the quote unquote peace that was brought by the Abraham Accords, which was made between governments that were not at war. But the the, the Emiratis said that the whole purpose of the Abraham Accords is it would give them more leverage uh, to help the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now look what what you have in there, right? And so, what do you say to the Palestinian people? Like, what what are they supposed to? to think is the horizon for them, right? I mean, I think the reality is they are just a complete afterthought in yeah. that that perceived progress towards more Abraham Accords-like agreements with countries like Saudi Arabia will always be this little carrot that Bibi holds up yeah. while he slowly annexes or maybe very quickly annexes all of the West Bank and tries to silence everybody by doing this delicate dance. And the thing is, it it's probably going to work, yeah. right? I mean, that's the, the has worked. The, the, the best, the, yeah. yeah, like, and that's like so. Th- that's only good if you don't think that the Palestinians should have a- any self determination, and you don't care what happens to them. But now there's also concern. This is the last point to make about what does this mean for Israelis. Who are uncomfortable with this? Right. You know, I, I, I mean, no surprise. My Israeli friends are not comfortable with this. Um, you worry for them for uh, sure. about the nature uh, of the uh, the government they have, and also you see these increasing tensions. I think with the American Jewish community because you have some pretty extremist voices wanting to redefine what it means to be Jewish, for instance, even reform, forget secular Jews, like even reformed Jews uh, in the diaspora uh, are, are no longer really Jewish to, to some of these voices in the government. So I do think that there are just going to be a lot of uncomfortable situations uh, that unfold. The question is, is BB able to manage them in a way? I'm sure this is what he wants, where each one of them goes right up to a line, but it, it never creates like a rupture. And he's just, you know, swallowing up more territory, expending more settlements, picking more fights, and and you know, knowing that he can stay in the good graces of Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, because really all they care about is entrenching their own autocracy. They don't care about Palestinians. Um, 
or does something does some flashpoint really flare up and and cause a real crisis in the West Bank or in Jerusalem um, that is harder to manage? I think thus far, like the Biden administration has kind of been condemning this in kind of statements that are well below the level of Joe Biden, mm-hmm. which suggests that they're not looking to to have this fight and want to avoid it. Yep. I just think it's going to be hard to avoid for the next two years. And look, and then their argument might be. Picking a big public fight with Bibi Netanyahu will benefit Bibi Netanyahu because it'll stir up all the forces of nationalism. That might be true. But at some point, like, there's got to be a more considered effort to push back on this guy and his policies and the people he's gotten in bed with. Because you know who's not doing it? The United States media. The U.S. media is addicted to giving Bibi Netanyahu softball interviews. It doesn't matter what he's been up to lately. It doesn't matter how many corruption charges. It's something like NPR, one of the Sunday shows. It's just like softball after softball. No, he's like this the Lindsey Graham of yeah, foreign leaders. He's like their chummy buddies. Exactly. He's their chummy buddy who just like yeah, comes yeah. on the show and yeah. it like feels important because he's a Because he knows state. how to do it. He speaks really good English yeah. and he knows American politics, you know. Right. He knows the players. He knows the game. I mean, it's just, it, 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 but it's a really dark status quo and trajectory. I would be also just trying to engage Palestinians, um, including, by the way, not, not Mahmoud Abbas, who, you know, he, that guy's out to lunch, He's... right? Like, is there next generation Palestinian civil society? But also other Israeli voices. It's really important, I think, that uh, American politicians are engaging not just this kind of, you know, this extremist government, but engaging other Israeli political figures, other Israeli civil society Instead of channeling everything through BB, which is exactly what he wants, like so, yes, you're not you're not going to fix it by picking a fight, but you're also not going to fix it by avoiding a fight. Uh, you have to find other entry points to try to to keep some semblance of of hope alive for a reconciliation and for different alternatives emerging from within Israeli and Palestinian society. Otherwise, we are just kind of normalizing this uh, drift towards like an autocratic block uh, in the Middle East, where as long as you don't like the Iranian government, like you can do whatever you want. Exactly. You know? And it, like there is also a concerted effort, I think, to crack down on NGOs within Israel. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly I mean, the point. Did you yeah. see the video of there was a, a, you know, sort of a progressive Jewish activist who got the shit kicked out of him by a member of the IDF or a member of the police who basically was like, you know, Ben Gavir is here now, you're all fucked. That's right. And so if I'm, the it, one thing that I'd be doing if I was US or European governments is, okay, yeah, you're not going to broker peace right now, but I would prioritize the defense of civil society in Israel, right? I'd prioritize the defense of civil society in Palestine, right? Like you just, be, because, you, you know, they're going to want to be choking off any space for any opposition, right? And that's what you have to try to prevent in the hope that at some point the pendulum can swing back in a different direction here. Yeah. Uh, A lot of dark news today, Ben, because the next topic here is Afghanistan, where the news keeps getting worse, especially for Afghan women. Late last year, uh, in 2022, the Taliban's economic minister announced a series of measures rolling back women's rights, including barring women from working at non-governmental organizations. This led many of the biggest international aid organizations in the world to suspend their operations. Um, and that comes on top of Afghanistan's economy being in, in freefall since the U.S. withdrawal and, and because of you know, sanctions, the freezing of Afghanistan's assets abroad the reduction in international aid, I'm sure COVID, broader economic slowdowns is impacting everything. They really couldn't be worse. So you have millions of people at risk of starvation. On Sunday, the deputy head of the UN mission in Afghanistan met with the deputy prime minister of the Taliban to discuss the situation. All of this also comes a few months after the Taliban banned girls from attending school after sixth grade. Uh, the UN Women's Department surveyed 151 aid organizations, and 86% said they have stopped working or are now only partially functioning. So that is just completely crippling their effort to help these people. I, I guess I, I wonder how much of that you know, slowdown is because these organizations are like, hey, banning women from working is immoral, or it's like practical, like, hey, we need these women to function as an organization because they're the ones doing the work. I don't know, but it's really spiraling. I mean, I think, I, I guess the question is, is this negotiation effort by the UN the best option here? I've sort of like no longer know where any leverage could come from. Again, I really think that the only way you can try to set a bottom underneath this kind of spiral is to negotiate. Uh, I continue to think that if the tactic is just sanctions and isolation, like you're just playing into a situation where 
Afghanistan is going to just disappear off the the map of the international community and become more and more of this kind of dystopia. Mm-hmm. I think we're dealing with a reality where it is what it is, and the sanctions are not in any way affecting the Taliban's behavior. If anything, it's just driving them into yeah. the comfort of isolation. So I would be trying to get together the broadest set of countries to support some process to at least identify how can we make life better for the Afghan people, you know, avert things like uh, famine and malnutrition, and, and try to get just some entry points for international organizations to function. Uh, and therefore prioritize things like yeah, the capacity for women to work on the ground for aid organizations. Because a lot of, as you pointed out, a lot of this is like, if you can't have your local workers, you can't function. Yeah, and um, it's just this capricious decision. It was like, the guy was like, oh, the women aren't wearing their headscarves. So they can no longer work. Yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. It's I mean, insane so if you can find some trade choice. space for uh, around around assistance to, to insist that at least there are certain carve-outs... Um, it's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to make life better for some people. And that's yeah. all we're going to be able to do in the in the near term. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying is, I think, totally right. But there is, there's like the U.S. government approach and policy part of this. And then there are these aid organizations that are like, yeah. we can't even, we can't function. We want to function. Well, and it, it, to come back to a point we've made on this podcast a bunch, but like we should be guided by those aid organizations. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're guided by our politics, which are like, we're done with Afghanistan. And, you know, every time the Taliban does something, we announce like, eight designations. I mean, what is that doing? You know, what can be done practically to improve things? What can we hear from the people who are on the ground about what those things are? Put the UN, I think, in the lead is right. uh, And just try to to, to make life, create lifelines for as many people as you can there. And and do a a lot more and a lot better in terms of helping Afghan uh, refugees get into the US or the people who supported the United States or the uh, the international coalition, NATO, throughout the war, yeah. help them get resettled to keep those promises. Uh, that's been a pretty big failure. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Before I went on paternity leave, we were talking a lot about China's zero COVID policy and the protests in response to their draconian lockdowns. Man, what a difference a month makes. Yeah. So China is relaxing their restrictions left and right on COVID. It's reopening, uh, it's opening its border to allow Chinese citizens to travel abroad. A bunch of countries, including the U.S., are moving to restrict their travel or require a test or something. Uh, China has dropped quarantine requirements for incoming visitors. That is pretty remarkable when you consider that there was like basically a two-year period where the country was completely locked down and isolated. I think our ambassador was the only senior U.S. government official taking meetings in person with Chinese officials. We don't really know the full impact of the policy change. Anecdotally, it seems like the virus is spiraling out of control across China. They had very little natural immunity. Their vaccines are not good. There's a lot to unpack here, and we should get into all of it. But I do think it's worth just like stepping back and thinking that when people are talking about China's zero COVID policy, 
and comparing its efficacy to the U.S. or Europe or other places, you should question whether zero COVID in China was really about the virus for Xi Jinping or something else. Like, I'm not saying he wanted people to get sick. I'm not saying he wants his economy to not function anymore like it's currently doing. But I do think people discounted how convenient uh, of a pretext zero COVID was for him and the Chinese Communist Party to just assert even more control over people, like completely iron grip, lock them in their homes, surveil them even more. But Ben, what did you make of the 180 by Xi Jinping on zero COVID and like what it might tell us about Chinese decision making? I think it's a huge story because remember the party conference that gave Xi this like unprecedented additional term, there was no mention of lifting zero COVID. Like that would have been the pivot point, right? And then you had these protests and then you have this total 180, as you say. And now, you know, you have like millions and millions of millions, if not tens of millions of COVID cases. We don't know because we don't trust the data. Get to that in a second. But what it tells me is that like we just witnessed public opinion completely change the policy of the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. And they can pretend like that's not what happened. We all saw it. That's what happened. Remarkable. So it does show you that even in this totalitarian system, she felt he had to respond. And I think it also suggests that the protests were much more widespread than we even saw. Because we saw like Beijing, you know, there's some really great dramatic reporting out of places like Beijing and Shanghai. We have no idea what was going on in villages and kind of industrial cities where there's no Western media presence whatsoever. And so the Chinese government must have been seeing something very worrisome for them to make this big of a 180. I think they've lost a lot of face because everybody knows that happened. And so everybody knows Xi Jinping is not as all-powerful as his cult of personality suggests because his own people forced him to change a signature policy, right? And the things to watch going forward, I think he was beginning to lose the confidence also of the international business community because businesses were like, we talk, we can't, you know, we have to move our supply chain. Lock down so factories. We, yeah, yeah, we got to move down to Vietnam or we're going to move uh, operations to Mexico, uh, companies we're looking at. And I don't know if, this is going to be enough to 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 win back the confidence of you know I think as businesses look out medium and long term, they might be thinking, well, we just this is too unpredictable. This is too weird. She's going to bet that their market is big enough to to mitigate that. That's something to watch. I also think you know the the impact on the global economy will be interesting because Chinese growth could restart over the course of the year. Interesting that could end up helping with growth, but it could hurt the inflation. <laughs> if True. suddenly there's another yeah. a bunch of Chinese demand introduced in the next few months as they, they open up. Uh, so that's something to watch going forward is is, is uh, how uh, like the resumption essentially the Chinese economy affects our economy in this window where there's going to be a massive, and there already is, COVID outbreak. Part of what's so eerie, Tommy, is like, we have no idea how many people are dying. None. We have, we have no, and they, this was going to happen at some point, right? Unless COVID disappeared from the face of the earth. There's something kind of eerie. Do you still look at the New York Times map of the world with like the mm-hmm. color? Like, try, like we just don't know the data. And and nobody, so the, the capacity of international organizations to trust anything out of China has also been like really compromised. I mean, yeah. can we trust Chinese numbers on COVID? Absolutely not. No, it's really a pretty awful story. I mean, and they had, look, you know, COVID has overwhelmed every single country's healthcare system, basically. Yeah. But they had this two-year window to improve their their hospital capacity or to get elderly fully vaccinated and boosted with a really a working vaccine, basically. And they just kind of failed to do it. They just locked them in their houses. Yeah, it's exactly the right point, and, and which shows you how much they, they care about the yeah, well-being of the people. people. In nearby North Korea, there has been also a ton of churn. So last year, Ben, I did not realize that there was a record 70 missile tests last year by North Koreans. And then at the end of the year, at a ruling party meeting, Kim Jong-un says that he has ordered an exponential expansion of North Korea's nuclear arsenal, the development of more intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I think I heard or read somewhere that he that Kim wants to develop smaller tactical nukes for potential use in the battlefield. They also last year, I think, I don't remember if we talked about this, but they changed their nuclear policy to include preemptive use or, you know, to end a conventional war. So there are like lots of like escalatory signals. North Korea in late December also launched drones across the border into South Korea. One made it basically to the exurbs of Seoul. 
Uh, and the response from South Korea's military was kind of embarrassing. Like they tried to scramble a bunch of jets. One of them crashed during takeoff. One of the North Korean drones just kind of like, I think, loitered for three hours in South Korean airspace and got back. So, you know, you're starting to see even more hawkish soundings out of the administration there. The, the South Korean president said that joint South Korea-U.S. military exercises could include nuclear assets in the future. Um, that seemed to catch the Biden administration off guard. I think Joe Biden was asked about yes, it. And he was like, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, again, like this is one of those problems where we bring it up because it's a huge deal if something happens. It's like this growing threat. The problem itself always sort of feels the same. It doesn't feel like there's great solutions, but you know, there's this like critical mask of escalation that does seem worth at least pointing out. No, I'm glad you are pointing it out. I also saw, did you see that Kim Jong-un... Uh, fired the head of the military. Yeah, um, number two guy. And he was like in a pic, it was a classic like North Korean Kremlinology too because like he was in a photo like uh, with Kim Jong-un and then a few days later like the chair was empty or something. Oh, really? And then, and then it was announced he had departed his position. Anyway, we don't know what that means because we never know what things like that mean. But I think Kim Jong-un's determination to fortify his nuclear and missile deterrent, to draw attention, whatever his mix of motivations is, like it's kicking in overdrive and we're likely to have a year where a North Korean nuclear test is back on the table. Uh, the risk of some provocation with South Korea goes up. Where I take this conversation is this whole region could become a little bit more combustible. Part of the way in which the North Koreans have justified or explained this escalation is Japan is ramping up its own defense spending, mm -hmm. right? Now, part of the reason Japan is doing that is because of Taiwan concerns and Taiwan contingencies and just the sense that they need to be doing more. But as Japan spends more in defense, then maybe the North Koreans feel like they need to do more. And Taiwan, as we've talked about, is upping its own defense spending. We're upping the amount of arms we're providing to Taiwan. This is all worth watching because, you know, the, the arrow is pointing up on escalation yeah. all around Northeast Asia, you know, and you saw the South Korean president in that kind of ham-handed way this reference to joint nuclear exercises. I don't know if he misspoke or what he was trying to accomplish there. But it, it shows you that, you know, the temperature is rising in, in a very dangerous part of the world. To pull back from, again, all these stories, like, you know, there are a lot of pots and the, they're starting to boil higher, you know, uh, in Ukraine, in, in Northeast Asia, obviously in Iran, which we've just talked about with Bibi there. The next year or two could really be a challenging one to navigate for the Biden administration and navigating it in the context of what American politics does to because normally what you do is what can we dial back here? Yeah. You know, can, is there some interim deal we can make with, with the North Koreans or the Iranians or the Russians to just kind of lower the temperature somewhere? That you'd normally be looking how how do you get one of these things in a calmer situation so we can at least focus over here on Ukraine, but American politics is going to make that harder in an election cycle that kicks in uh, with a Republican House, and so navigating through these two years I think is going to be harder than people I think have yet to absorb. Yeah, I mean, look in the context of BB, we didn't even talk about the fact that the Iranian nuclear agreement seems to be just completely dead. Yes. I mean, part of that is understandable in the midst of these protests you didn't want to, I don't know. Look, I, I wish they were still negotiating thing. I wish we were in no, the Iranian I wish we were in it. Yeah. The best would have be we're in it during the, you know, uh, the protests. But like Netanyahu, uh, look, the first, like six months into the Obama administration in 2009, a bunch of Israeli officials, I probably Netanyahu himself on background, told Jeffrey Goldberg at the Atlantic <laughs> yeah, that yeah, they were like yeah. six months away from bombing, yeah, right? Yeah. And we had to like manage that. So that's that play is coming again. I mean, you're going to see Netanyahu and his security cabinet talking in very hawkish ways about military strikes on Iran and probably asking the U.S. to do it. In terms of the U.S. and China and the sort of the, the Asia Pacific region you were just talking about, I mean, we're kind of decoupling our economies. We're increasing defense spending. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden's put all these like export controls and uh, in, yeah. in place to punish China. We put this huge bill forward to create our own semiconductor industry to kind of like pull back from any uh, dependence on on Taiwan or the Chinese government. So yeah, there's a lot of like unnerving kind of the background the, the, music. I guess that the point because it, on it, every one of those things makes sense on their own. 
right? The concern is where does it, the logic of all those things together lead? And again, I, I actually don't, I'm not putting this on the Biden administration because some of these, they inherited things that were in stride. The, she and Putin and the Iranian regime are obviously uh, have escalated things on their own. But the logic of all of these developments is leading towards more confrontation. And at some point, that becomes an actual confrontation or it becomes it lands in some kind of de-escalation. And I don't see where the de-escalation is coming in any of these three areas, Northeast Asia, the Middle East, and Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and we've kind of exhausted the conversation about whether or not there should be peace talks in Ukraine. I mean, obviously, everyone wants that to happen. Well, it's you, not happening. It, yeah. Neither side. It's the just Ukrainians not and Russians yeah. don't want it. Yeah. And so Putin part in, in Ukraine, it's just does the, does the conflict somehow freeze at some point? Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, last thing, Ben. So some lots of news out of Brazil. The sad news for Brazil uh, is that soccer legend Pele died at 82. Although 82 is a hell of a run. Yeah. Uh, the good news is that Lula da Silva is now president. Jair Bolsonaro is not. There was no violence. There was no refusal to transfer power. All the things people were really concerned about did not happen. Uh, there are rumors that Bolsonaro was moving to Florida. You <laughs> might be I, my I was source spreading that. I, I think I was spreading those rumors. Now, right? is that just because uh, Bolsonaro skipped Lula's inauguration to go to Mar-a-Lago and I think was eating KFC yeah. in Orlando? Why was he in Orlando? Disney World? Oh, did you go to Disney? World? I, no, I don't know. I'm just oh, guessing. Good, that's, good that's, that's like why you go to Orlando. That's right. right. The Mar-a-Lago thing. I, the reason you know there's this kind of weird, like right-wing Latin American, like base in Florida. You know, yeah, there is. like uh, that's where like the the, the you know uh, a lot, well, a varying you know some of these people are better than others, right? But obviously, like you've got a long-standing right-wing Cuban exile community, Venezuelan exile community mm-hmm. now. And and so may, who knows maybe Bolsonaro set up shop on the right wing uh, Brazilian uh, uh, opposition in, in Florida, and it's you know Ron DeSantis has declared it's where woke goes to die right. Um, you know, yeah. We know how Bolsonaro feels about woke culture. It's true. Um, I will say it was very uh, satisfying to watch Bolsonaro that like humbled, um, but I you know I expect that we haven't heard heard the last from him. Yeah, he's a survivor. He's a survivor. But look, we should say, like, this was really good news. And actually, like, we should also say, like, Brazil managed this transition, like, cleaner than the United States did. Sure did. Um, You know, in the sense that, like, we had January 6th, like, I'm not not crediting Bolsonaro here, but something in the Brazilian political culture looked at that abyss, um, even though Bolsonaro was saying that the election was stolen, even though his supporters were in the streets, uh, it, it did not disrupt the transition of power as much as our own transition power was pretty disrupted. And it was looked very hopeful to see Lula uh, take office. Lula alone is not the solution to that problem. We had Tabata Amaral on a Brazilian legislature who spoke very eloquently about the need for some generational change in Brazil over time, the need to figure out a way to have dialogue with some of Bolsonaro's supporters in the evangelical community in Brazil. Um, but, you know, autocracy lost in Brazil and uh, Lula's in there and there's an opportunity there. Um, and it was good to see people like, you know, Gabriel Boric of Chile, mm-hmm. uh, at, at, you know, th- there. Um, but hopefully he can seize this opportunity to to not only put in place policies that help Brazilians on things like narrowing inequality, but also trying to find a, like a broader base than he won with and a way to pass the baton uh, to the next generation while fending off uh, a Bolsonaro, whether he's back in Brazil or hanging out at Mar-a-Lago uh, doing Ghana's whatever. Slinking out of yeah. it as well. The other thing I should have mentioned is, did you see that the opposition legislature in Venezuela, they voted to like uh, dissolve the interim government, which means that Juan Guaido is no longer the sort of like opposition president, which like, I mean, not trying to like knock the guy in any way, but uh, it does seem- Well, let's knock of... uh, Trump and Bolton and Marco Rubio on this. Yeah, because... it sort of ends that play. And by the way, let's knock the US media. Because when Juan Guaido was recognized as the president of Venezuela by Donald Trump and John Bolton was taping like, you know, TikToks videos, in, in, yeah. the, in the Roosevelt room declaring the coup and General Rubio was live tweeting from the Venezuelan border, it got front page coverage and it was 
it was just put in a hawk dove time, you know, like everybody got kind of pushed into being that was that policy was an unmitigated catastrophic failure above all for Juan Guaido, who's now no longer. Yeah, maybe Donald Trump still sees him as president of Venezuela like nobody else does. And so back to the drawing board. And I'd like, as we talked about, to see some diplomatic settlement there. Yeah, maybe that does open some space for Joe Biden to, you know, keep hitting the gas on talks with Maduro's government uh, maybe some sanctions relief in terms of for political prisoner releases. Just like to break the political be. impasse yeah, and get something. to an election and something that can improve the circumstances of Venezuelans. Because the other thing that, that you know, we've talked about is that the flow of Venezuelans and Cubans to the southern border is a part of why the border crisis is so acute, right? Yeah. And one, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm looking at a way to reduce the crisis at the border. And look, you know, we haven't talked a lot about it. We should probably come back to the border at some point later. We should. Title 42, like, a lot of stuff there. One yeah. way you can do that is to improve the humanitarian circumstances in Venezuela and Cuba. And and you can do that without suggesting that you support those governments. Yeah. Uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, humiliated himself in his efforts to become Speaker of the House today. So I think they adjourned yeah. the session without naming a new Speaker. We still don't have one. We don't know who's going to be in charge. But we do know that focus on all things border, all things immigration all the time is going to be, I think, probably, I mean, after like Hunter Biden's laptop or whatever, like sort of um, anti-Biden oversight they do, that will probably be the number one policy issue, which is immigration. And um, I think they're going to try to impeach the head of DHS. So yes, anything that Biden can do to try to improve the situation uh, would probably help him in the long run. Yeah. Well, the Republicans are maybe too big of a mess internally to to actually focus on it, but I mean, it, it's a real issue. The, the numbers are really high and there's no prospect of immigration reform. It, it is something worth coming back to. Yeah, this is one, not one of those things where it's like, oh, this is manufactured. You know, it's a real no, issue. it's a real like, issue. They, people they, are on the yeah, border, they're yeah. suffering, yeah. they're waiting six months in squalid the, And the camps. numbers still keep coming yeah. up of people coming to the border. Yeah, it's really bad. Uh, well, that's it for us this week. Uh, we didn't have a guest because it's our first day back. And we're just excited to see you. And yeah, I'm just excited to just yap with my buddy. I will say, do you remember Pele? Uh, like as a player, I'm. I mean, this is my slight, slight age. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, slightly higher than you. Um, and but and being in New York, I remember when he came to play for the Cosmos. So in the '80s, there's um, like that famous bicycle kick he had yeah. right in some game. There, like I don't remember the Cosmos at all. So I, as a New Yorker, I remember the Cosmos. I remember the Cosmos, and they were just kind of this small fry team that played on a place called Randall's Island in New York, which. Uh, was this kind of small? St- Actually, the stadium where the Cosmos used to play, I ran like track meets in when I was in really? high school. That's how small it was. No way. Uh, but when Pele came, they moved to Giant Stadium. Uh, That's cool. And suddenly this went from being like, you know, a few thousand people going to soccer games to like sold out or 60,000 people Giant Stadium and glamorous and there's Pele. And uh, so I, 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 he's my first memory of a soccer player, you know? That's cool. I mean, it is really interesting when like the greatest players in the world decide to leave, you know, the Premier League or whatever. Well, see, Messi the US. joins Bolsonaro in Florida, you know. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> well, there's talk about for him joining well, My, the team. Miami team. The Miami team. The Miami team in MLS. Like, yeah, I think yeah. I read that he might have bought a house or rented a house. He's got a house there. Not He's not going to do anything like this year or next year, but there's, I, I think people are believing that he will, his last stop before he retires will be MLS team in Miami. Yeah, David Beckham, I think, did that. Beckham like... owns that team. Oh, okay. He played Be- for so the Beckham played for the Galaxy, Galaxy out here in LA. Yeah, I mean, like the LAFC, the other uh, LA-based soccer club that just won the whole thing this year and is really good. I think they won in part because they brought over that badass uh, Welsh player, Bale. So oh, it's yeah. interesting to see some of these like great players decamp to the US. Yeah. Good for them. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're hosting the World Cup, so if ever you know, there's a time to really put the pedal of metal on U.S. soccer. It's in yeah, the next four right years. Right now. Yeah, yeah. SoFi Stadium, see you in 2026. Uh, all right. That's all I got. You got you got back to, do you do like, I mean, are you doing like morning feedings? I remember that's what I was doing. Han and I are like swapping out. I do a lot of diapers. The thing about diapers is they're not hard. They're just endless. You know, it's like Sisyphus. And what, the, yeah. The what's kind of. Um, boulder full of shit. Do you have one of those diaper genies? No, what's that? Oh, where do you. Th- but they're 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 these like contraptions. They're like garbage cans, but they have this like seal, and you open it up and just drop the diaper in. And oh, maybe we shut. do yeah. have that. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, scent control. I mean, she's yeah. so little that it's not an issue yet. But I think that 
changes over time. Yeah. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, it does. I do a lot of diapers. We swap out feedings. Um, Hannah's parents were here for a while, which is incredibly helpful. But yeah, I mean, look, she is so little that she just sleeps a ton. Yeah. I think she'll wake up more and more and more and the uh, obligations will increase, but they're all fun. They're all good. Yeah. Well, enjoy the peace of your child sleeping on you because now, you know, uh, like I I could injure myself. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Hannah's mom was saying that she's like, I got to get in like all the cuddles I can with a one month old before I go see her. Her other grandkids, like a two-year-old who will just sort of like not going to chill out and spend time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. On your lap. Something kind of chill about uh, like an infant sleeping on you. Yeah, so, they're uh, super, super That's cute. something not chill about changing a million diapers. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, more to come. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, great to be back and talk to you guys and uh, see you soon. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.